All right, morning church. Good to see you all. We're going to study God's word together. So I hope you got a Bible with you. Open it up to the book of Psalms. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, if you'd follow along as I read. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home and a swallow, a nest for herself, where she places her young near your altars, Lord of armies, my King and my God. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a source of spring water. Even the autumn rain will cover it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Each appears before God in Zion. Lord, God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Consider our shield, God. Look on the face of your anointed one. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. For the Lord God is a son and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, Lord of armies. Nothing grounds believers like the worship of God. We're wired by God to worship him. It's the deepest longing in the human heart. Having been made in God's image, we long to worship him. So many of the Psalms, they ring with this sound. It's almost a sound of homesickness to be near God. Psalm 42, it's like a deer that's panting for flowing streams. That's what it feels like to be me right now. I want to get so close. I want to come. I'm panting in your direction. I have to be near to God. Psalm 42, Psalm 43, all the Psalms of the Ascents from 120 through 134. There's this deep desire, a homesickness to be near to God. Our our kids, as many of you know, they grew up in New Orleans, and we didn't move to Birmingham until 2012. And so they... They weren't babies by that point. You know, they were 13 years old and 10 years old and 7 years old. So they had accumulated experiences there. And, uh, and they had friends and relationships there. And then we come to this new place in Birmingham, Alabama. And then the holidays hit. And it's going to be the first time that we drive from our new house in Birmingham back down that familiar interstate. Particularly, so you come through Slidell, then you come through New Orleans East, and then you hit the eight miles of interstate from West End Boulevard to Williams Boulevard that we were up and down like crazy during their time as children. And uh, the van got really quiet. And I'm looking at them in the rearview mirror, and they're just looking in both directions on both sides of the interstate as we hit West End, and then we hit Bonneville, and Causeway, every one of these exits, Clearview, David Drive, Williams Boulevard. And the, the reason that there was a sense of looking out the windows and a, a heaviness in the van is I think the word that was on everybody's mind but nobody said out loud is home. This is home. This is the place where as they're looking out the window, 
They have memories on every exit, down every one of those lanes. There are stories connected to this place, not this other place, this new place. We don't know people there. We don't have stories there. This is home. This eight miles of interstate, this feels like home. Perhaps the best commentator, in my judgment, on the wisdom literature in the Bible is a guy named Derek Kidner. You might want to get his commentary on the Psalms, his commentary on Proverbs and so forth. When Derek Kidner looked at Psalm 84, he put a heading over the top of Psalm 84, and the heading is this, the pull of home. So that's the, that's the drift of this passage. It's, it's home. It's God's dwelling place. You see that language there in the text. Just look down and glance and let these words jump off the page. It speaks of God's dwelling place right out of the gate. It speaks of the even the sparrow finds a home and even the swallow finds a place to nest her young, a safe place where she can build a nest. And then he speaks of the blessing of residing in God's house, of dwelling in God's house. It's a pull of home all over this passage. Look, the story that we are living in. That's what this series is about. It's called Storyline. We're asking the question, what is not just my individual testimony as a Christian? What is our collective testimony as God's people? What's the story God is writing with us as his people? And this morning we're looking at the fact that the, the Lord is writing a story of renewal. He's writing that story with us as his people. And that's what you see happening in this passage. It's a story of the renewal that happens when God's people come near. He brings his people near and he pours out blessing and strength and joy and water of refreshing over his people. It's his deep springs of renewal we're meant to experience when we're near God in worship, gathered together as his people. We're going to see it unfold in three stages. The first is this, the, the longing. The longing. So our, the psalm uses this language of yearning, this language of longing. Look down in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. The deepest cry of the psalmist is to be near to God. Deepest cry of the psalmist is to be near to God. You, you think about Another well-known psalm, if you're familiar with the psalms, is Psalm 27. And Psalm 27 is when David says, if I could just have one thing in the whole world, he says, it would be this. I would, I would want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord in the temple of the Lord with the people of the Lord. That, that would be my one. That would be heaven. That's heaven for me, to be near to God among his gathered people. That is this pull of home. There's a, there's a problem in the world. Biblically speaking, the problem is that God, who made us, has set eternity in our hearts. So we, just by virtue of the fact that we were created in his image, we feel the pull of home. There's a kind of magnetism that's drawing us home, that's drawing us to God. But because of our sin, it's clouded our judgment. Right, the, the compass is broken. We don't know how to get home. We know there's some, there's this instinctive sense that there is a home, but we don't know how to get there. And we come bumping into all the wrong places, right? As Andrew Peterson said, as, says in his song, and he talks about this very reality. And he says, all the maps were drawn, but the maps are wrong. 
He says, the stars spin around another sun. There's another center of the cosmos. And the center of the cosmos is the revealed glory of God in Christ Jesus. That's home. Christ is home. We just don't know it yet. In our sin and in our fallenness, we don't know it yet. In Psalm 84, we encounter someone who knows where home is. This person knows, has a working compass. This person knows where renewal happens. It happens in the presence of God. You see that language? My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. It's the way that the ancient Hebrews would say, the total reality of my personhood cries out to God. The inside, the outside. My heart, my flesh is harmonious. Everything in me, everything outside of me, my entire personhood is reaching for God. I want to be near to him. Let me ask you the question, is that language a part of your Christian experience? You ever look at a season in your life as a follower of Jesus and say, you know, that was a year where I was really hungry for God. I couldn't get enough of his word. I wanted to hear it preached. I wanted to read it. I wanted to sing the truth. I was hungry for him. Who wants some cold, stuffy, crusty religion when we can have a burning heart for God? And that's what the psalmist pictures, page after page. The people of the burning, the people of this hunger, this thirst, this panting in a Godward direction, this yearning for God. I hope, if you've never had that, I hope 2021 is that year. I hope, by God's grace, we thirst for him, we hunger for him, and we look back on the year and say, man, I was hungry. Man, I went after God that year, and it would seem to just be this work of grace. It was like the wind was in my sails just pushing me Godward. Oh, how awesome would that be for this year? And if that happens by God's grace, you know what else happens? Renewal. <laughs> the story that God is writing is a story of renewal in the hearts of his people. Look at verse 3. I love this metaphor, this language he's using. Even a sparrow finds a home. And a swallow, a nest for herself, where she places her young, her most treasured possessions, her vulnerable ones, and she places them where? Near the altars. Near your altars, Lord of armies. It's a striking picture of security in the presence of God. Speaking of picture, a couple days ago I googled the greatest painters of all time. I just Googled that. Greatest painters of all time. And of course, it pulls up the familiar names. It pulls up Michelangelo. It pulls up Rembrandt. It pulls up Picasso. One name that I thought to be there that it didn't pull up was Bob Ross. So, uh, I mean, isn't he one of the greats? He's got to be top 10 painter of all time. Bob Ross. I grew up watching, <laughs> watching Bob Ross. And if, if you're familiar, so uh, if you're familiar with Bob Ross, he had this kind of secret sauce is he would interact with the viewers and he would, um, he would animate the painting in front of you. He, he would say, let's just, let's, just put a, let's just put a happy little bush over here. He just put this bush right by the water. But it's not just a bush, it's a happy little bush. And, and in this bush, he just says, he's just appealing to your imagination. He said, you can just imagine just some, some squirrels just kind of skedaddling, you know, just kind of moving around. 
You can imagine just a happy little bird just making his nest up in that tree up here above the mountain, right? And he's kind of bringing you into that, that feel of things, right? Well, it's almost like the psalmist is thinking, he's thinking of the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He's thinking of the, the road that leads to Zion, the annual festivals of worship that took place in Jerusalem. And it's almost like he continues to imagine there the, the, the awesome temple of Solomon, and which was the courts of the temple were out under the open skies. And he, he just sees under the eaves of the temple of Solomon these sparrows and these swallows. And he says, there's a story there. He says, oh, to be, the very next verse, he says, utter blessing and utter happiness is to live near God, is to reside in God's house. It's almost like he's saying, we come on pilgrimage and we come three times a year, then we got to leave. They get to live here in the eaves of the temple. They, they feel the warmth of the burning sacrifices on the altar at all times. Their young are raised in that environment of the burning altars of the sacrifices of God. He says, that's bliss, to live in Zion, to live near God. Perhaps there's even significance in the kinds of birds that he named. Some Old Testament commentators believe that there is significance in the sparrow and the swallow that were chosen because it's thought to be that the swallow is a kind of symbol in scripture of restlessness. It's the bird that's always on the wing. It's always in flight. It's flying from, flitting about from place to place, here and there. And the psalmist says, the swallows feel so secure that they build their nest near the altars of God. It's, it's a metaphor of the rest can find, the, the weary can find their rest near the presence of God. There is a rest that's only found in the Lord. There is a rest that's only found in the Lord. It was Aurelius Augustine, the great fourth century theologian, and the Holy Spirit turns the lights on in his heart. And one of the first things that dawns on him when he writes in his confessions is he says, it dawned on me, Lord, you have so made us, he writes in his confessions, that we cannot even rest until we find our rest in you. In other words, it's like Augustine is coming to the self-conscious reality. I was the swallow, flitting about from place to place, from broken cistern to broken cistern to broken cistern, and I never knew where home was. I never knew where I could rest, and then I found out it was in Christ. All along, there was the pull of home, and now I found home, he's resting in God, if the swallow is a symbol in scripture of restlessness, the sparrow is a symbol of worthlessness. Remember, Jesus comes on the scene centuries later, and sparrows still have that same reputation. They're worthless birds. So he's telling the story of how of God the Father's attentive care for his own people. And he Jesus says, the, the Father knows every sparrow, even the sparrows. He tracks the life and well-being of every sparrow. And he says, what's a sparrow worth? A penny? Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're absolutely worthless. He says, you can have the smallest unit of currency and not just buy one, but buy two for a penny. They're utterly worthless. And then he says, but your father counts you as of so much more value than many Sparrows. His argument from the, it's an argument from the lesser 
to the greater. It's the, it's, it's the inspiration of the song that's been sung now for many years, His Eyes on the Sparrow, and I Know He Watches Me. What a picture this is of gathered worship, that it's a place where the restless and the worthless can come find rest in Christ. If that's the kind of church I want to be a part of, that's a beautiful thing. Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the great preachers of the last century, he wrote uh, on this text, and here was his comment, applying this verse to the church. He said, I look down some little street and see a chapel where a group of simple people worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, despised and rejected of men, even as was their Lord. And I know this is the rich reality of spiritual truth. Here are the sparrows who find their nest at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's like the psalmist is looking up on his way into the temple courtyard and he sees these sparrows and these swallows and he says, man, they get to live here. Oh, the blessedness of living and residing in God's house. So there's this longing and then secondly, there's the journey. The longing and the journey. Look with me at verse five. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on a pilgrimage. It's a journey. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a source of spring water, even the autumn rain, and cover it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Each appears before God in Zion. This appearing before God in Zion, this pilgrimage, it's thinking of the, the fact of these three annual festivals where people from all around Jerusalem Miles and miles, multiple days of travel would come from all these different places, disparate places, and they would all convene together for the festivals of God and worship around the temple, which meant that they would inspect the roads. They would repair the roads. Three times a year, they would go out and say, are the roads clear for all the people to come to Jerusalem? And this pilgrimage of God's people headed up to Mount Zion, headed up to the temple of God in Jerusalem, it becomes a metaphor in this psalm. And I say it's a metaphor because of the language that he used there in verse 5. There are highways of the heart whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. He's not just talking about physical feet. He's talking about hearts that have open avenues into the presence of God. Even if the roads are closed... Even if the lights are off in the temple, there is a pilgrimage the heart can make to come near to God. It's an awesome thing. He goes on, verse 6. As they pass through the valley of Baca, it's, um, it's a difficult word for Hebrew scholars to translate. Some think that it has a reference to uh, balsam or mulberry trees which would have been planted and were found in arid places in the ancient Near East. In that case, some of the Old Testament translators will translate it the, the, the valley of thirst, thirsty valley, even as they pass through thirsty valley. But there's another word that's very similar in Hebrew to the word bakah. It just has an extra letter at the end. And that word means tears or it means weeping. So some translate it in that way. And they say, even as they pass through the valley of tears, even as they pass through the valley of weeping, it becomes a spring of water. Passing, what a beautiful picture that is, right? Passing through thirsty valley, they experience springs of water. 
That's a church where God is writing a story of renewal, even in the ashes, even in the midst of great suffering and trials. That, that's faith that clings to the promise of God. What's the truth of us of it for us to hold on to? Surrounded by sorrows, we are strengthened in worship. Surrounded by sorrows, we are strengthened in worship. In other words, this, this is Psalm 84's version of weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This is Psalm 84's version of though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit be on the vine, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation. This is Psalm 84's version of, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her. She shall not be moved. Psalm 84 is riffing on that same idea, that same truth that Glorious things happen in the hands of a God who cares for us. Even our trials forge deep faith. Isn't that what James would say? Count it all joy, knowing the testing of your faith is going to produce something, something rich, a firmness, a rigidity, a tenacity that only trials can forge in the hands of God. A guy named Douglas Malick, he knew a lot about timber about a century ago. He was the associate editor of the American Lumberman, which was a trade paper in Chicago. He was known as the Lumberman's Poet. And he wrote a poem called Good Timber. Good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger wind, the stronger trees. The further sky, the greater length, the more the storm, the more the strength. Psalm 84 talking about that same reality. Even in Thirsty Valley, there are springs of water for those who find their strength in God. It's a promise. Surrounded by sorrows, we are strengthened in worship. Second, weakened by sin, we are shielded in Christ. Weakened by sin, we are shielded in Christ. So the psalmist uses direct address in verse 8 and nine, that he's, he's talking directly to God, appealing to God. You see that language, right? He's, these parallel verbs, hear and listen, consider and look. He's requesting, he's petitioning, hear, listen, consider and look. He says, consider our shield. And notice the shield in this verse is a person. More specifically, the shield of Israel is the king of Israel. The shield is the king whom God had anointed the psalmist knows something that they knew back there in the Old Testament times, and it's that, that the well-being of Israel is bound up with Israel's king. If he's faring well, then we are faring well. If, he's, if the king and the throne of Israel is in decline, the nation is in decline. And they looked at David, King David, as God's anointed one, right? He, as long as David lived, as long as he ruled, his rule was like a shield around Israel. He triumphed over their enemies all around and provided security and safety for the entire people of Israel. But here's the problem. David died. And all of his victories turned out to be temporary victories that were more or less attached to him. And so they went out the door. Just give it time. They went out the door when David passed away. But here's the thing that, that we know for reading 
God's word through the lens of New Testament revelation, which is what Jesus tells us to do. In Luke chapter 24, he interpreted the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the things concerning himself. In other words, it's Jesus himself who says, get back there in the Old Testament and look for me. Because the plan all along was that God would set on the throne forever, not as a temporary provision, he would install a king from the line of David. And what do we find out about Jesus Christ? He comes in the fullness of time. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the very first verse of the New Testament tells you who he is. He's the son of Abraham and he's the son of David. This one doesn't look like much right now. He will mount the throne and he will bring peace on every side that lasts forever. The government's going to be on his shoulders. And his rule will endure for all time. And what do we know about the Christian gospel, the Christian message? We know Jesus, through his living and dying, and in his rising, he conquered all of our foes. Sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave his triumph over them is unending. The sting of death has already been taken away for believers who trust in Jesus, which is to say, he doesn't just triumph on his own behalf. His well-being means your well-being if you've trusted in him. He bestows his victory on his church. That's the glory of the gospel. Christianity, P.T. Forsyth said a century ago, he said, Christianity is not the victory we win, it's the victory we inherit Christ our King bequeaths to the church his victory. God has installed his forever king on the throne. Our shield is Christ. He is our shield against sins that would conquer us. He is our shield against the accuser whose flaming arrows would stop us in our tracks. Christ is our shield. Let me ask you the question this morning. Do you have the shield that is Christ? I want you to leave with the shield. You can leave with the shield. If you, if you know you need this shield that is Jesus, you can have this shield that is Jesus. You can be guarded on every side from the threat of punishment that our sins deserve. If you're trusting in him, repenting of your sin, hide in Christ and you have a shield. Do it today. I love the language that he uses here. You think about this, Christian, what do you say when sin gets the upper hand in your life? And by the way, that happens, right? What do you say when sin gets the upper hand? You say something like, God, consider our shield. In other words, when you look at me, look at him. When you look at me, look at the one who hung for me. Look at my mediator. Look at me through his cross. That's the gospel. That's the provision of salvation. Look at my shield. All our renewal, church, is right here. It's in this gospel. So there is a longing and the journey and the blessing. The blessing. Verse 10. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I don't know how many of you were humming, better is one day in your... That was like, that was the jam like 20 years ago in the church, Right? That's, it comes from this passage. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. 
He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, Lord of armies. It's the pull of home at the front end of this passage and in the middle and at the end. How do you hear the pull of home? He says, it'd be better to spend one day near God than a thousand days rubbing shoulders with the ones this world calls great. Give me a place. I'll just hold the door open when people come. Let me do that. That's bliss. To be near God. It was James Montgomery Boyce, the late theologian and scholar and pastor, and he referred to Psalm 84 as the janitor's psalm. And he called it the janitor's psalm because you see there the superscription at the top, just under Psalm 84, for the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, if you go back into the Old Testament, they were the ones who were assigned various menial tasks around the temple. Clean the place up as the people head toward the festival. Let's make it look like our God is hospitable. Let's hold the door open as they come to worship. That was the sons of Korah. James Montgomery Boyce said this is, this is the janitor's psalm because it's a psalm where it says it would be better to just hold the door open for God's gathered people coming near to him than to live great in the eyes of this world. Just give me a day holding the door open for the house of God. It's all I need. It's all I want. What do we get? We put our trust in Jesus Christ. What we get is grace for the journey. Just leave us with two truths. Two reminders. We get grace for the journey. Verse 11. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. There is no promise here or anywhere in God's word that we will be favored and honored by this world. Matter of fact, Jesus says, if you want to promise, I promise you, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. He says, you want to promise, I'll promise you this, in this world you're going to have trouble. In this world you will have tribulations. In this world you're going to walk through the valley of Baca. You're going to walk through Thirsty Valley. You're going to walk through a valley of tears. But if we want not the favor and honor of this world, if we want the favor and honor of God, Psalm 84 says, clear the highways of the heart. Make a way, beat, let your heart beat a path to God. His nearness is our good. You'll have grace for the journey and second, glory forever. Grace for the journey and glory forever. Look, the ultimate destination of those who are in Christ is not a temple in Jerusalem. The ultimate destination of those who are in Christ is not the thousands of different places in which God's people are gathered this morning on the Lord's Day all around the world. It's not the ultimate place. It is a beautiful and wonderful place. It's a place of grace and renewal. But it's not ultimately where we're going. Where are we going ultimately? We're marching to Zion. That's where we're headed to the celestial city through the veil of tears to the shining city of God. Revelation promises people who have passed through Thirsty Valley. And what does Jesus say? Arms open at the gates of Zion. He says, come in, I've got water. You've come through Thirsty Valley. 
come and drink forever. That's ultimately where we're headed. The new Jerusalem that comes down. The pull of home in Psalm 84 is deeper than the magnetism of Solomon's temple. The story that God is writing is in verse 7. They go from strength to strength. That's renewal, right? Strength to strength. Each one will appear before God in Zion. How do you know you will endure to the end if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ? You will endure to the end because God will keep you to the end. That's why. How do you know you'll persevere in faith? You will persevere in faith because God will preserve your faith. That's why. Assurance. The glory of assurance. What does Psalm 84 teach us to expect as God's people as we approach him and worship together? Psalm 84 says, let me describe for you the house of God. Let me describe for you the gathering of the saints in the church. Sparrows and swallows find their rest. Tired sinners are becoming whole in Christ. Children are being nurtured in the faith. You can set your young near the burning altars. They'll, they'll be safe, but they'll grow up near the Lord and his people. Uh, one modern hymn describes the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world of God incarnate, of Emmanuel, God with us, and it described it in terms of the upshot, the, the impact it has on a needy world. He says, when love came down to earth and made his home with men, the hopeless found a hope and the sinner found a friend. Psalm 84 says, sparrows come, swallows come, thirsty valley travelers come. There's water, there's rest, there's renewal, there's strength, there's joy. Come to God. And he's, it's the pull of home bringing us to himself. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. How about you? Well, why would we want something else? Why would we want some crusty, angry, curmudgeon faith that's generally mad in all directions when we can have this buoyant, effervescent joy in Christ that's magnetic, even to a watching world? Come get some. We got answers here. Brooke Hills, let's give rest to the weary this year. Let's give a shield to the embattled this year. And let's give glory to God this year.